Hey listeners, welcome back to episode 9 of Creme de la Crime podcast. This podcast is strictly dedicated to the facts and theories surrounding unsolved disappearances. This is done out of respect for the loved ones and of the missing. On the list this week is the state of Florida. According to worldpopulationreview.com, the state of Florida has 1,252 unsolved disappearances. It's important to keep in mind that this is based off of actual known reported cases. It is possible the real number is higher than that. So you already know the drill. Grab your wine and let's dive in to a little Florida true crime. Before we get right into today's episode, you guys have heard me talk about one of my favorite podcasts a couple times in some previous episodes, but today I want to play you the official trailer for Live, Laugh, Murder podcast with Joanna and Carmen. So here we go. I'm Carmen. And I'm Joanna. And we want to introduce you to our podcast, Live, Laugh, Murder. On our podcast, I, Carmen, tell my co-host, Joanna, say, hey. Hey, girl. I tell her a story, and it is not always true crime. We are true crime with a twist. With a twist, like a twist. Got it. The twist here is that sometimes the stories I tell Joanna are true crime, and sometimes they are the plot of a creepy movie. So listen in and join us as we tease Joanna to see if she can figure out which is which, because she is not the creepy movie buff or the true crime enthusiast. Nope. And can you figure it out as well? Yeah. So that's us. Join us. Live, Laugh, Murder podcast, and we love you. You won't be disappointed. You won't be disappointed. So once again, go follow Carmen and Joanna on Instagram at Live, Laugh, Murder podcast. And as soon as you're done with this episode, go check them out on any platform you listen to your favorite podcast. Before we jump into it, I want to let you know this is going to be my longest episode so far because both of these cases have a lot of details. And I'm not saying it's long as a bad thing. I'm always very thankful when there's a lot of information about a case, but I do typically try to keep my episodes between 30 and 40 minutes. So this one's gonna be a little bit longer, but we're really gonna stick to the facts today because I don't want this episode to be too, too long. So let's get right into it. So the first story I wanna share is about a gentleman by the name of Benjamin Wayne McDaniel. Ben McDaniel was born on April 15, 1980, in Memphis, Tennessee, to parents Shelby and Patty McDaniel. He was the oldest of three children and grew up in Tennessee. Ben was an avid scuba diver, which he had first taken up at the age of 15. He was also a certified open water diver and was working to get a certification to be a cave diver. In the late 2000s, Ben was going through a really difficult time in his life. He had gone back home to live with his parents after his marriage ended in divorce and his construction business had failed. The business failing also left him with a tax debt totaling almost $50,000 to the IRS and the state of Tennessee. At this time, he was also still grieving the death of his younger brother, Paul, 
who died in 2008 at the age of 22 from what they thought was a stroke. Ben had found Paul unconscious in the family home and had tried to revive him. He later became active raising money for the foundation his parents established to support research into prevention and treatment of strokes. Later, it was revealed that Paul's cause of death was actually a drug overdose due to opiates and not a stroke. It was noted that Paul did not have a prescription for opiates at this time. So I'm really confused as of why Because this is in 2008, so, you know, there's obviously autopsies and all these kinds of things that we do when someone passes away suddenly. So I'm really confused as of how the family went so long to think that his cause of death was a stroke that they were able to start a foundation and raise money for it before they found out it was actually an overdose. This detail doesn't make any sense to me. His parents suggested to Ben that he take a sabbatical. They offered to support him financially while him and his chocolate lab lived in the family's beach home at Santa Rosa Beach. He accepted the offer and moved into the house in April of 2010. His parents and girlfriends said the move was beneficial because Ben was beginning to think and talk about moving on from all of his recent personal setbacks. Relocating to the Gulf Coast also allowed Ben to regularly scuba dive. Despite living on the coast during his sabbatical, he preferred to dive in fresh water. He became a frequent visitor to Vortex Spring, which is located inland just a short distance north of Ponce de Leon, Florida. At Vortex Spring, which claims on its website to be the largest diving facility in the state, Divers descend into clear waters at a constant temperature of 68 degrees Fahrenheit. Diving instruction is offered for all levels. Experienced divers come for the underwater wildlife and the cavern, which begins at 58 feet below the surface. All divers are required to show proof of an open water certification and sign a release of liability. For the most experienced divers from all over the world, the main attraction of Vortex Spring is the cave. This cave starts 300 feet from the cavern at a depth of 115 feet. At the entrance is a sign depicting the Grim Reaper and warning divers that the consequences of continuing past that point could be fatal. The cave continues, steadily narrowing, to a makeshift rebar gate with a chain and padlock almost 300 feet from the entrance. The dive shop gave the key only to those people who could show that they had the cave diving certification. This certification requires two months of training, including 125 dives with an instructor or certified diving partner. This policy was put into place in response to threats from the state to ban diving in the cave entirely after 13 divers died in the cave during the 1990s. Starting from the gate, over 1,600 feet through the area's limestone bedrock have been mapped to a depth of 310 feet. The cave's full length and depth is not known and I'll get into this a little later as of why this is. 
At some points, the passage narrows to 10 inches, requiring divers to take off their tanks, push them forward through the passage, and twist their bodies to follow. So I'm extremely claustrophobic, and the thought of this is so scary to me. It gives me horrible anxiety. And I'm going to share pictures of this cave and how it is mapped out so you can see what I'm talking about. But in the picture, there are four of these narrow passages. And you have to think about how wide 10 inches is. Okay, so two inches shorter than a ruler. And the best picture in a movie that I can think of to represent what they're having to do with their tanks is the movie Sanctum. If you haven't seen it, you should definitely watch it. It's a good movie. But the people in the movie actually have to do this exact thing with their tank. So you can kind of see how stressful of a situation that it is. You're literally taking your air tank off of your back. You're taking your mouthpiece out. So you're holding your breath this entire time. And you have to push your tank in front of your body and wiggle your way through this 10 inch pass. And like I said, there's four of these. So just try to picture this in your brain. These are grown men going through these passages that are 10 inches. I'm telling you, if you watch Sanctum, you're probably going to catch yourself holding your breath during these scenes. But Ben's dives at this site were regular enough that the dive shop employees and other frequent visitors knew who he was. One of the employees, named Chuck Cronin, believed that while Ben had the proper equipment and considerable diving knowledge, he was often overly confident in his abilities and not shy about saying so. According to a 2014 online comment by his father, Ben could not find anyone at Vortex Spring willing to be his diving partner, so he always did his dives alone. His parents later defended him from criticism by seeing these as positive traits. His father made a statement saying, Ben was brave. Ben was fearless. He followed his passions. After living in Florida for four months, Ben returned to Tennessee for a week. His parents and girlfriend, Emily Greer, said he seemed optimistic. He told them he was working on getting certified as an instructor so he could find a job and that he was also working on getting his cave diving certification as well. On his nights out with Emily, he told her that he had plans to start a diving-related business. On the weekend of August 14 to 15, he returned to Florida, leaving a letter thanking his parents for the sabbatical and promising to look after them when they grew older. On August 18th, the Wednesday after he returned to the Santa Rosa Beach House, he went up to Vortex Spring again. In the middle of the day, it's said that he did one dive. Other divers stated that they saw him looking closely at the area around the cave entrance as if he was planning something. After resurfacing, he filled his tanks at the dive shop which was recorded on the shop's security cameras. He spent the rest of the afternoon by himself alongside the spring, testing some equipment and making notes in his dive log. The day had been hot, with temperatures around 90 degrees Fahrenheit, 
and as it grew darker, Ben began preparing for another dive. He called his mother on his cell phone, which is the last contact he ever had with his family. Around 7.30 p.m., as the sun began to set, he went into the cave again. Chuck and one of his colleagues, Eduardo, were on their way back from a dive when they saw Ben as he began descending into the water. They said he had his lights on and was wearing a helmet, suggesting that he was going back into the cave. Eduardo, who had suspected for some time that Ben was the one forcing the gate open, went down to him and unlocked it, watching Ben go in and then returning to where Chuck was on land. This is the last time that Ben is ever seen. Remember, even though Eduardo unlocked the door and let him in this cave, Ben did not have the proper certification to be allowed to go into this cave. On some nights when they had seen Ben dive late, the two had stayed at the spring after resurfacing until they saw bubbles on the surface. The bubbles indicated that Ben was beginning to decompress in order to safely resurface. However, on the night of the 18th, they decided to go back to Eduardo's house for coffee instead. Ben's truck was still in the parking lot the next morning, but with so many summer visitors coming to enjoy the picnic grounds, the employees were too busy to notice. After seeing the truck the next morning and determining that no one else had seen Ben, Eduardo called the Holmes County Sheriff's Office. Upon their arrival, the deputies sealed off the spring with crime scene tape. Ben's tanks, wetsuit, and other diving equipment were not present and there were no signs of a struggle near his truck or anywhere else he could have been. His wallet, with almost $1,100 in cash, and his cell phone were also in the cab of his truck. His dive log showed that he had explored the cave and a map that he had personally made was also found. At the Santa Rosa Beach House, officers found his dog, hungry from having been unfed for two days. Based on these circumstances, police and dive shop employees assumed that he had never resurfaced and had probably drowned somewhere in the cave trying to get out. Investigators brought out cadaver dogs who gave alerts on the water surface, further supporting that theory. Reports of a missing diver in the Vortex Spring Cave spread, and other cave divers volunteered for what they assumed would be a recovery operation. Ben's parents were called, and they drove to Florida along with Emily to observe from the shore. News media in the Panhandle and Memphis followed the search very closely as well. Captain Harry Hamilton, an investigator in Holmes County, assumed at first that a very large number of divers, both amateur and expert, would volunteer to search and recover Ben's body. He soon realized that very few divers in the entire world possessed the training and skill to attempt such a dangerous cave diving recovery. Experienced divers searched the cave, investigating small crevices and fissures Ben might have entered in a panicked attempt to exit the cave. This is a pattern regularly found in other cave diving deaths. It was really risky work, and one diver said that they had nearly died during the search. 
Multiple divers searched through the weekend, but did not find any sign of Ben in the cave. They did, however, find some of Ben's equipment. Two tanks known to belong to Ben were found near the entrance of the cave. This discovery struck some searchers as inconsistent with Ben's intent to explore the cave he was technically not permitted to enter. Cave divers usually place extra air tanks needed for decompression at points along their exit route so they can follow them out and not only at the entrance of the cave. When tested, the tanks were found to contain normal air and not the specialized gas mix required for diving at depth. Ben would have definitely been aware of this requirement if he had been researching cave diving like his parents and girlfriend had stated. More detailed information regarding tanks was given in the Ben's Vortex documentary. Three tanks believed to belong to Ben were recovered. Tank 1 was an aluminum 80 full tank with a regulator and was found 200 feet inside of the cave. Two other tanks lacking regulators were attached to the talk box in the outer cavern area where the talk box was located at the time. All contained normal air, not a specialized gas mix. The talk box, originally located in the piano room of the cave, was moved to the basin area of Vortex Spring and is now at a depth of only 21 feet. By Sunday, August 22nd, no other signs of Ben had been found. A text message was sent to Ed Sorensen, a veteran cave diver and recovery specialist with nearly 2,500 log dives. He was on a yacht in the Bahamas at the time leading an expedition, but arrived at Vortex Spring the very next day. Other divers and an official with International Underwater Cave Rescue and Recovery told him it was too dangerous to search any deeper into the cave. Ed, who has been described by the Tampa Bay Times as being able to go where other divers cannot, persisted with the search anyway. He made three separate dives that day, going 1,700 feet into the cave, which was 200 feet further than those sections Ben had mapped. He used a diver propulsion vehicle and smaller tanks to increase his range. He found nothing. No body and no evidence of one such as increased activity by carnivorous aquatic scavengers. There was also no evidence that Ben had gotten into those sections anyways, such as marks on the cave walls or disturbed silt. Ben was 6'1 and weighed around 210 pounds, which was one inch taller and 20 pounds heavier than Ed was. Ed said without cave diving training, there was no way Ben could have gotten through some of the narrower passages that they call restrictions in the cave. I know what I'm doing and I barely made it through, he told the commercial appeal. The last place I searched was pristine, without a mark that a diver had ever been there. It would be impossible to go through that restriction without making a mark on the floor or ceiling. He's not in there. Ben's parents did what they could to help with the search. They hired Steve Keen, who had originally mapped out the Vortex Spring Cave in 2003. After seven dives, he apologized to them for not finding any fresh sign of Ben. 
If he's in there, I don't know where he'd be, he later said. Ben's parents agreed to put up $54,000 to guarantee the cost of replacing a remotely operated underwater vehicle brought to the spring by the Fort Lauderdale police in case it was lost in the cave. Due to technical issues, it was unable to go any farther than the human divers had ventured. In total, 16 divers spent 36 straight days looking for Ben's body in the cave with no results. Volunteer searches continued afterwards at the spring through November, often with the family and Emily in attendance. I just feel so sorry for the family in this because there's really nothing they can do to help. You know, if you're not an experienced diver, you can't even look for your kid or your boyfriend. So really all they can do is spread the word, put up a reward, and stand on the beach and hope that someone finds Ben. With the cave thoroughly searched, some divers began questioning whether Ben was there at all. Perhaps his body had been secretly removed from the cave before searching began, and had been disposed of on land, or had washed out through the spring's outlet. Others suggested that he had staged his own disappearance to start his life over under another identity and escape his past troubles. Authorities began to consider these possibilities and adjusted their search. The cadaver dogs searched the woods around Vortex Spring without any success. Assisted by helicopters, they searched the swamps along the spring's outflow into Blue Creek and Sandy Creek to the Choctahatchee River. Thirty separate tests of the water over the next several months showed no sign of an increase in the bacteria that would indicate the presence of a decomposing human body. Eduardo, who had let Ben into the cave despite knowing that he lacked the proper certification to dive, passed a lie detector test of his account of the events. Frustrated by the limitations of the search, his parents offered a reward of $10,000 at the end of the year to anyone brave enough to go to the unsearched places of the cave and find Ben. The insinuation of cowardice alienated divers who had already risked their lives searching that cave. It also raised fears among them that it would only encourage untrained divers to enter the cave and take a potentially fatal chance for the reward money. Despite these concerns, his parents increased the reward twice. In March of 2012, the fears of the cave divers were realized. Two days before the Investigation Discovery Channel series disappeared, aired a segment on Ben's case, a diver from Mississippi named Larry Higginbotham died in the cavern at Vortex Spring. His body was found the next day after he, too, had failed to return from a dive. One of the divers that had helped recover Larry's body was quoted saying, He just got himself in a pinch and couldn't find his way back out. There was no evidence that Larry was trying to find Ben and claim the reward, but the divers who recovered his body believed that he was. Ed was quoted saying, he was also found near a shovel left near a restriction so small that no one could get through it. Ed was also one of the divers that had pulled Larry's body back through these four tight restrictions. 
The following month, after increasing criticism, Ben's parents withdrew the reward offer. Ed made a statement saying, Not only did it endanger the lives of divers who would risk going farther than they should, it put all of our lives at risk because we had to go in and recover the bodies. By that time, his parents had also come to believe if he had not died in the cave, Ben had been murdered. By 2011, it seemed unlikely that Ben's body would be found in the cave. His parents began considering the possibility that he had died as a result of foul play and that his diving disappearance was staged to cover up a crime. There was also speculation that perhaps he had been found dead by the dive shop staff who feared the consequences of letting him dive without being certified. His family hired a Florida private investigator named Lynn Marie Cardi, who found that other people associated with Vortex Spring had criminal records. She was quoted saying, There is just as much reason to look above the water for Ben's body as there was to look below it in the cave. Some other events reported to have occurred on the day Ben disappeared supported this theory as well. Kelly said shortly afterwards on that evening, a man he described as wild-eyed and apparently drunk showed up at the shop and asked if it was too late to dive. Speculation has been raised that this man, if he really existed, may have been involved in Ben's disappearance. Earlier that day, a diver had a confrontation with several teenagers on the property about their drinking. They eventually left the area, but may have come back in an attempt to get revenge. In March of 2012, Ben's parents arranged for cadaver dogs to search the area of the spring again, but found no results. One of the divers who heard about the case was Jill Heinerth a Canadian who has set the world record for the deepest dive by a woman. Her and her husband, Robert McClellan, are both certified cave divers and documentary filmmakers. The two went to Vortex Spring to make a short video and hoped to show it to the McDaniel family in the hopes of giving them a better understanding of the risks associated with cave diving and for closure. At this time, she believed that Ben was not in the cave. During the research process, Jill was able to read Ben's dive logs and the map that he had made. She realized that he had, in fact, gotten very far into the cave. Knowing that divers in trouble will often burrow deeper in a mistaken effort to get back to the surface, she changed her opinion. In an email that she sent to the commercial appeal, she was quoted writing, I simply see no reasonable evidence that he is not in the cave. Her and Robert turned their private video short into a feature-length documentary titled Ben's Vortex, which released in 2012. This documentary considers all the theories regarding Ben's disappearance. One, an accident, as originally believed. Two, a murder or cover-up of the accident, as his parents have sometimes claimed, and three, the possibility of a staged disappearance to allow Ben to escape his problems. Shelby does not believe Ben had any intention of abandoning his life. He had left his dog in Santa Rosa Beach and had not given Emily any indication of these plans either. 
Shelby also noted that Ben had seen the impact Paul's death had had on his parents, and he was quoted saying, After what we went through with Paul, we know our son well enough to know he would not put us through that again. Ben McDaniel was last seen entering the cave at Vortex Spring on the evening of August 18, 2010, when he was 30 years old. He is a Caucasian male and was 6 foot 1, weighing around 210 pounds at the time of his disappearance. He has brown hair and blue eyes. He was last seen wearing a black scuba diving suit, C-130 scuba tanks, goggles, yellow fins, a computer dive watch, and possibly small round earrings. Ben was declared legally dead by the state of Florida in 2013. His case is classified as lost or injured missing. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Ben McDaniel, please contact the Holmes County Sheriff's Office at 850-547-3681. Since both cases today are fairly long and have a lot of details, I'm not going to really waste any time today. We're just going to get right into this. So, case two today is about Tiffany Heaven Daniels. Tiffany Daniels was born on March 11, 1988 in Dallas, Texas, to parents Cindy and Rodney Daniels. She also has two sisters. Tiffany did well in high school and was known for her interest in art and her outgoing personality. Her family described her as free-spirited and said she could lift the mood of those around her simply by her presence. Tiffany enjoyed painting and eventually took a job at the Pensacola State College Theater in Pensacola, Florida, where she painted sets. When she wasn't at work, Tiffany took advantage of Pensacola's cultural and natural attractions. She regularly organized and attended blues and swing dance parties downtown. She was a regular hiker and biker in the dunes of Florida. She was a pescatarian, which is a vegetarian that also eats some seafood, and she had four tattoos on the top of her feet showing plants growing and blooming. Tiffany enjoyed life, but she also did have some financial problems. Her parents said that by the summer of 2013, they had noticed she had been paying rent for a series of roommates who were either unwilling or unable to pay their half. After another roommate moved out in July of that year, she decided to advertise on Craigslist for a new roommate. Gary Nichols, who was the 54-year-old father of one of her friends, was separating from his wife and wanted to live closer to his job. He answered Tiffany's ad and ended up moving in. Her parents did not like the idea of her sharing a place to live with a man more than twice her age, but Gary was able to pay his share of the bills and the two had similar interests. Gary also liked bicycling and followed a similar diet to Tiffany. On August 11th, Tiffany started the day with a farewell breakfast for her boyfriend, who had recently been accepted into the graduate robotics program at the University of Texas in Austin. He had asked Tiffany to move there with him, and even though they had a good relationship, 
Tiffany had told her friends she wasn't ready to leave the Pensacola area just yet. She had also already begun to make plans to visit him in Austin in the near future. After the breakfast, her boyfriend left. Gary recalled that she was slightly depressed for the rest of the day, but was also excited about planning her future trip to Austin. Tiffany and the theater department were scheduled to start preparing sets for a production of Spamalot that fall. That night, her and Gary decided to watch Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which is the film on which that musical is based, for inspiration. After watching the movie, they both went to bed because they had to work the next morning. At 5 a.m., Gary said he heard the door to the house open and close several times. He looked outside from his room, thinking it might be Tiffany, but said he didn't ever see her. When Gary got up later and left for work around 7 a.m., Tiffany's gray Toyota 4Runner was gone. He assumed she had already gone to work. Her parents later stated that it would have been unusual for her to get up early because even in situations where she had to, she would usually only leave right before the time she had to be wherever it was. Tiffany got to work on time for the beginning of her shift painting sets. She asked her supervisor if she could leave a little early that day and also told him that she would be taking some time off. She said it would possibly be the whole week, but did not explain why other than she had things she had to take care of. Her boss told her it was fine, and she punched out of work at 4.43 p.m. and then left the theater. No one has ever seen or heard from Tiffany again. That night, Gary grew concerned when she had still not returned home by 10 p.m. She also didn't answer or return any of his phone calls. Gary called his daughter, Noelle, who told him not to worry because Tiffany was an adult and might just want to hang out with friends closer to her age. He said he agreed with his daughter about this, so he went to bed. Gary attempted to call Tiffany when she still had not come home by the next morning, but still he could not reach her. That evening, he returned and found that the electricity to the house had been completely turned off. He assumed that Tiffany had failed to pay her share and decided to call his daughter again to tell her that Tiffany still had not come home or returned his calls. This time, he suggested to her that she get in touch with Tiffany's parents, which she ended up doing via a private Facebook message. Noelle and Tiffany's mother, Cindy, soon began working through the extensive list of her friends that they knew of. None of them had seen Tiffany all week either. They all assumed that if she was anywhere, she was visiting people she knew, but they had already called all of her known friends. By the end of the week, they realized it was time to call the police and report her missing. Tiffany's mom initially went to the Escambia County Sheriff's Office, which she said seemed very dismissive of the case. They took the information she gave them, but said they believed that her daughter had gone out partying and would turn up soon of her own accord. However, because Tiffany had been living in the city of Pensacola and was last seen there, he referred the case to the Pensacola Police Department, who Cindy later said showed much more interest in the case. Detective Daniel Harnett met Cindy at Tiffany's house and conducted a search there. 
He said he found no signs of foul play and Tiffany's tent was still in her room. This led Daniel to conclude that if she had decided to leave town, she definitely had not decided to go camping. When the detective learned that Tiffany's boyfriend had left Pensacola the day before, he also decided to explore that angle. Her boyfriend had called her when he arrived in Austin on the 11th, but not at all on the 12th. He was cooperative and provided fingerprints and DNA samples, and his cell phone records confirmed he had been in the Austin area all weekend and had not returned to Pensacola. The detective also considered that perhaps Tiffany had been depressed over her boyfriend's departure. Her sister later told Disappeared that she had seemed a little less cheerful than usual. The investigation ended up finding that at some point after her early departure from work, Tiffany had briefly stopped by her house. Gary was home at the time, but was on the phone with his girlfriend and does not remember seeing her. Cindy was skeptical that he could have missed that she was there, but police believe his account of what happened and do not consider Gary a suspect. They also noted that he was the first to raise concern about her whereabouts when she didn't come home. In my personal opinion, I don't think this guy has anything to do with her disappearance. Over the first weekend after Tiffany disappeared, the case started being publicized. The news outlets reported on it, and her friends and family handed out flyers on the street and posted them up around town. Early the next week, it produced the first lead related to her disappearance. A jogger that was also a friend of the family recognized Tiffany's forerunner in a parking lot at Park West in Pensacola Beach near Fort Pickens. It was discovered on August 20th, eight days after she was last seen. It was said she was a regular hiker in the nearby dunes of Gulf Islands National Seashore, despite her mother's warnings not to go to the beach alone. Cindy later said that the way her car was discovered suggested to her that something terrible had happened to her daughter. Tiffany's bicycle, cell phone, purse, wallet, clothing, paintings, a jug of water, and a jar of peanut butter were all found in her vehicle. After it was towed to the police garage for examination, investigators found two fingerprints. One was on the door handle and the other was on the steering wheel. These fingerprints could not be matched to Tiffany or any of the investigators who had worked on the car. A resident of a nearby condominium said the car had definitely not been there until two days earlier. Two other residents said that they had seen a man getting out of the car earlier that day. To establish when the car had been driven to the island, detectives pulled security camera footage from the toll booths at the Bob Sykes Bridge. This bridge is the only connection between Pensacola and the island. The camera showed that the forerunner had passed through the tolls at 7.51 p.m. on the evening Tiffany disappeared. Investigators are keeping Tiffany's vehicle in the police impound lot with its contents intact in case new information comes to light about her case. The questions still remain as to whether anyone had seen anything or anyone who might have left the car in the parking lot where it was found. Two large residential complexes reserved for tourist rentals are adjacent to this parking lot. 
Investigators wondered if it was possible someone there might have seen something the night she disappeared. Friends and family once again circulated flyers in the area and spoke to local residents, but still got no leads. At the police garage, investigators found sand on the bicycle tires, but none on the car's floorboards. This made the detectives wonder if Tiffany had gone for a bike ride on the beach that evening and decided to go for a swim afterwards. If she had, it was possible she may have drowned. A friend of hers noted that the Perseid meteor shower was happening at that time and said this was the sort of thing Tiffany liked to watch on the beach. However, no bodies have ever been found on the shore, and detectives say it's typically common for them to wash up after drowning. It's also possible that she had an accident or was victim of foul play somewhere on land, but there was no evidence to confirm this. Santa Rosa Island is 50 miles long, and the police didn't have enough manpower to search even the beaches, much less the dunes. The weekend after the car was found, the Class Kids, which is a volunteer organization that was founded in the wake of the Poly Class case, searched much of the island with volunteers and search dogs. A few fragments of clothing and pieces of jewelry were found, but none of them belonged to Tiffany. With all searches and procedures exhausted, they determined that no further physical evidence was likely to be found. Tiffany's friends and family set up a Facebook page to further the search and stayed busy sorting through all the tips that kept pouring in. One of these tips was a convenience store clerk who claimed to have seen Tiffany several days after she was last seen. At first, this tip seemed credible because the man recalled the tattoos on her feet. However, the store security camera footage for that day failed to confirm this. In January of 2014, several months after her disappearance, the Facebook page provided what her parents considered a more credible report of a later sighting. A woman who worked as a waitress at a restaurant in a town just outside of New Orleans reported that shortly after the disappearance, she had seen a woman matching Tiffany's description. She reported that the girl had come in with two other women. One of these women was said to be around the same age as Tiffany, and the other woman was older. They were possibly Latina and nicely dressed. The waitress said both of the younger women acted strangely. She thought it was weird that both were wearing long-sleeved shirts despite the warm weather with the cuffs pulled over their hands and stated that they would both not make eye contact with her. They mostly seemed to let the older woman do the talking for the group. I think it's important to note that these are commonly known red flags related to human trafficking. When the waitress told one of the younger women she looked like the woman who had been reported missing in Florida, the group abruptly got up and left. Unfortunately, the restaurant security cameras had been taped over since the date of this encounter, so there was no video confirmation of the waitress's story. Her parents strongly believed this was Tiffany for two reasons. The first reason was the statement the waitress made about the girl putting her sleeves over her hands. They stated this was something Tiffany frequently did when she was cold. 
The second reason was because this waitress said that the woman who resembled Tiffany had asked whether they used a fish or chicken broth. Her mom recalled a similar incident when she was out to eat with her daughter. The restaurant had substituted chicken broth in Tiffany's soup since it had run out of fish broth. This was a difference Tiffany could taste because remember, she was a pescatarian and normally avoided any chicken-based foods. Her family began to fear that she had not been found because she had somehow left Pensacola between the last sighting and the beginning of the search. The family also stated they did not think that she had left voluntarily. They began researching human trafficking as a possible explanation. They saw similarities between Tiffany's case and that of another woman who had recently been drugged and abducted near Panama City and taken to New Orleans by two men who told her that she would be working there as a prostitute. While traffickers typically prefer to target women in their late teens, according to experts, they will occasionally attempt to abduct women closer to Tiffany's age. Since Tiffany loved people, her parents said they believe she would have probably trusted these people enough to fall for whatever pretext they used to approach her. Interstate 10, which passes through Pensacola and New Orleans, has been described as one of the major trafficking routes in the United States. However, detectives said they have found no evidence to support the trafficking theory, but also said they are not ruling out anything at this point. Myself, personally, I do lean towards the trafficking theory the most. I do not believe that Tiffany left voluntarily. The second anniversary of Tiffany's disappearance in 2015 led to two developments in the case. The Investigation Discovery Network decided to bring back the popular series Disappeared, which profiles missing persons cases, and thankfully Tiffany's case was one of the cases that was chosen. A crew from ID went to Pensacola, filmed locations associated with the case, and performed reenactments. They interviewed the detective assigned to the case along with Tiffany's parents, her sister, and some of her friends who had helped with the investigation. The episode aired in April of 2016. Before the episode aired, the first new evidence in the case since the original investigation surfaced. In December of 2015, her family and the police disclosed that in the wake of coverage of the case's second anniversary, Someone had come forward and told police that on the day Tiffany's car was discovered, they had seen a man in his 30s wearing red shorts and no shirt opening up the car's tailgate. This report was consistent with two witnesses that said they saw a man leave the car after it was parked there. The witness remembered this because the car had been parked unusually, facing oncoming traffic in an area reserved for wildlife. Her dad, Rodney, is a retired assistant fire chief with the U.S. Department of Defense. He now teaches first responders how to identify the warning signs related to human trafficking. Tiffany Daniels was last seen on August 12, 2013 in the parking lot at Pensacola State College in Florida, where she worked at 5 p.m., her gray Toyota 4Runner with the Florida license plate number ECBOR 
was found abandoned on August 20th. The car was parked in a parking lot of Park West at Pensacola Beach. She is a Caucasian female with blonde hair and blue eyes. She was 25 years old at the time of her disappearance and was 5 foot 7 weighing around 135 pounds. Tiffany has tattoos on both feet of plants growing from seeds. She has a brown spot in the iris of her right eye. Her case is classified as endangered missing. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Tiffany Daniels, please contact the Pensacola Police Department at 850-435-1900. Well, that is all I have for today's episode. But if any of my listeners have a loved one that went missing and has never been found, please feel free to contact me directly, podcast 7 at gmail.com, or you can follow me at Pod on Instagram, and you can direct message me there to have their story shared on a future episode. And as always, don't forget to keep your eyes and ears open out here. Until next week. This is Sam signing off.